What I want to do today, and I hope I'll be desperately brief, is to talk about all three of the readings. First, to remind us that the season of Advent uh, is about hope, joy, expectation, and repentance. And in the reading from Micah, we have a couple of, about three weeks ago or four weeks ago, somebody in Episcopalian 101 asked me if I would speak at the class or talk about the Bible as a narrative. And uh, some of the narrative quality of the scriptures has been lost, certainly I think as the result of what I was taught in seminary, taking little bits and, uh, you know, interpreting them or, or focusing on them instead of thinking about the grand sweep of the narrative and being less concerned about its historical uh, accuracy. And what we're reading today is part of an important narrative about how early Christians and the biblical writers understood what was going on. So when we read the passage from Micah, there's a couple of things in this narrative that are important. One of them is to speak about Bethlehem, which is the site of King David's birth. And guess what? In the biblical witness in the New Testament, it said Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so this scripture reading prefigures the idea of now the Messiah coming from Bethlehem, just like King David, who was born in Bethlehem, comes. And in the, in the time of Jesus, what they expected to have happen was a Messiah who was going to be both a kingly Messiah and a priestly Messiah. And so we read the passage in Micah. It's quoted in the New Testament. And the other piece that's in this is the whole idea of the hope of restoration, the restoration of Israel that what's going to happen as the result of this is that the completion, it will be the completion of the return. Because there were many people in the time of Jesus who believed that even though it was a long time ago, that the exile had not completely been finished. And this now brings it uh, to its wholeness and completion. So Micah is talking about that. <clears throat> in the reading from Hebrews, we focus it then in the person, in the body of Jesus. Part of what's in here is a long, uh, or a description of the atonement and Jesus giving himself up for us and so forth. That's one focus. I'm, I should say this as a footnote. <clears throat> I'm a subscriber to the view that the message of Jesus had to do with the ways and the means that you and I can participate in God and participate in Christ. And that in fact, that was the principal focus of Paul, not the focus on the atonement. And there is always that tension in Christianity between those things. So when we say that Jesus gave his body up and we read elsewhere in the letter to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, we understand that somehow his teaching and preaching has an effect on our bodies. 
that we learn to be people who are generous, people who are self-giving, people who understand that we now become the best human beings that we can be, because in him we have seen the fullest effect of what humanity can be. And so the writer in the letter to the Hebrews is today speaking and alluding to that. So, in the gospel, I want to say a word about Mary, which is important. I said this uh, in the service of lessons and carols last week, but I want to repeat myself and talk about two two things that I'll read to you and, and, and bear with me about that. Um, the first thing is that uh, I'm going to read from Edward Norman's book. I recommend this book, An Anglican Catechism. Edward Norman was the Chancellor of York Minster in England. And he wrote this book in the early 2000s and he has a section about Mary that I think uh, it bears, so please bear with me uh, in this regard. Let me see where I want to start. Um, it is possible, but not realistic, to contend that the Church of England is by negative deduction not hostile to Marian devotions on the grounds that there have been no authoritative retractions of those decrees of the early councils of the universal church which originally sanctioned them. But the Church of England does not have the constitutional means of making any such pronouncements. So in the matter, the matter remains decisive, indecisively open and attitudes to the place of the Virgin differ according to styles of churchmanship and spiritual psychology. There can be no doubt, for it is a matter of historical record, that the Church of England has in practice conducted its liturgical development and its theological exegesis as if the Virgin has no place in the scheme of salvation beyond that of being the human mother of our Lord. Paradoxically, however, the modern church has decided in its liturgical calendar to choose the day in August, which is universally recognized as the Feast of the Assumption, as a special feast of Mary. It is surely disingenuous to suppose that the selection of this day, August the 15th, was unassociated with the doctrine of the Assumption or that Marian devotions would not thereby be encouraged. Perhaps the question is best regarded as one in which Anglican opinion is in transition. Okay? When I was in seminary, the Trinity Institute uh, came to the University of Wisconsin at, at Milwaukee, was traveling around, and one of the speakers from the Trinity Institute was Cardinal Sunens, the Cardinal Archbishop of Belgium. And he was one of the speakers, and I remember him saying very clearly, he looked at everyone and said, when you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept, 
A theological concept does not have a mother. So, I can't pretend to you that I engage in any hair-raising devotional practices to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but I'm also open to the idea that she has a place in the divine economy. And that part of the reason for that may be what Carl Jung said about Mary, that it sort of uh, gave some sort of completeness and wholeness to how Christian people understand God's work in the world. It's through Mary that Jesus received his humanity. And she is important. But she's important for another reason. And this is the other thing that I wanted to say about this. Uh, Elizabeth Johnson is a well-known theologian. She wrote a wonderful book called She Who Is a long time ago. And I looked on the internet uh, when I was writing my sermon and found an article that she wrote some a while back, like in 2012, called Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary. <laughs> You might expect that from a feminist theologian. But in the article, it was, it's a very good article, I recommend it. She quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, theologian who resisted Hitler and the Nazis. He came to the United States for a time and then he went back to Germany and he was executed by the Nazis in 1945 before the end of World War II. I think he was one of the people that Hitler asked to f have his execution filmed so he could watch it later because he was too busy to go. In any case, Bonhoeffer wrote this. <clears throat> it is at once the most passionate, that he's speaking, by the way, I should have said this, in the reading you heard in the gospel, uh, the Magnificat was read. Mary speaking the Magnificat. It's the visitation. She goes to see Elizabeth, her kinswoman, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. The narrative continues. We will see now John the Baptist being the culmination for Luke of all of the Old Testament prophecy drawn up into himself. And he will announce the coming of Jesus and Mary visits Elizabeth and the babe leaps in her womb and Mary speaks after this uh, affirmation of Mary's blessedness. Mark Bruce may remember this, but it's St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo. Uh, when I was about ready to go off to seminary, I don't know what the reason was. Maybe Father Wilder had me preach that Sunday, but he wanted me to stand at the door uh, as the people were coming out to press the flesh, as LBJ used to say. And we were standing at the door, and someone came out and said, Father Wilder, don't you think that saying the Hail Mary is getting dangerously close to Rome. 
And he said, no, I don't. I think it's getting dangerously close to the gospel according to St. Luke. <laughs> so we have fragments of that in the reading today. Bonhoeffer says, it is at once the Magnificat, the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song, Bonhoeffer continues, has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the woman prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth, swelling with new life by the power of the Spirit and affirmed by her kinswoman Elizabeth, Mary sings a song that proclaims God's gracious, effective compassion. You know, it's part of the idea of meditating on this text to reflect how is it that Luke puts these words in her mouth. Why? Now, what's not connected to this particularly is that uh, Mary is also viewed as someone who was obedient. You know, most of us don't like that word in a culture where I, 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 me, me, me is the center, right? Solipsism. I make my own reality. I make my own truth. I'm the one who divines what's truth. I'm the one that, that, that says what's real. That's what we do. But the fact of the matter is that what it be, let's use another word, compliant. Maybe it's a little less stringent. But it does have something to do with living an, uh, an intentional life. So when you read and hear words like the Magnificat, it says, well, how am I going to cooperate with this? Am I going to be an instrument in big and small ways for the changes that need to take place as we live in the world? This is not just directed to our own interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states, although that may be the starting place, but it has something to do with how we become reflections and transparencies of God's grace and love. And I think, uh, I used to get a newsletter from Walsingham, the hair-raising piety in Marian devotion and Anglicanism, and it was called Our Lady's Mirror. a little exotic, you know. But maybe it has something to do with the biblical witness and thinking about the mirror that's held up to everybody when you hear that. More passages about social justice and equity occur in Luke's gospel than in any other gospel. And he is concerned with how we see in Jesus the possibility for the transformation of the world. So, when you're saying your prayers, once in a while think of Mary, 
and think of her importance in the divine economy and ask yourself uh, how you can be obedient to the still small voice that you know is not your own. Amen.